poopy. This is the Olympic Files. <clears throat> this is a series, and it was started by my being made aware by a listener of a book called Dark Union. The subtitle is The Secret Web of Profiteers, Politicians, and Booth Conspirators That Led to Lincoln's Death. This was written by uh, Ray Neff and Leonard Gutridge. It's the first time I ever saw that John Wilkes Booth, who certainly did shoot to death Abraham Lincoln, was himself not shot to death at Garrett's Barn in Virginia when he was trying to make good his escape. And this isn't a far stretch whatsoever. And, and the reason why I start off with the uh, Gutridge Neff book, Dark Union, is because I think still to this day they've done what I consider the best job of documenting, documenting what happened. Now, there's, there's seams in all of this. There's gaps in, in, in all the work that's ever been done on the assassination. But I'm not so much involved with the assassination, which was, I think, pretty straightforward. What took place at Secretary of State William Seward's house is another thing. But still in all, what I found fascinating was that something like this could never get into our history books, that Booth did escape. I kind of like left it, let it go for, for years. I think about it. I mentioned it a lot. But um, I just got interested in it again. And also because of the amount of material that's av available on archive.org. You get all these accounts for the record, and that doesn't mean they're necessarily true, I mean, but the information is there. And Theo and I had done mostly all this stuff on, on suppressed history because it does tell you how conspiracies are kept. And as I said this once before, when people say, well, you know, you can't keep a conspiracy that big quiet, you certainly can. And I said before, too, that hundreds and sometimes thousands of people know what happened, but it only goes mouth to mouth. And it doesn't make a difference if it was in 1865 or if it was in 2001. In fact, I would even say that it was probably, it's probably easier now to keep consp uh, conspiracies quiet because people are being pounded 24-7, seven days a week, 52 weeks a, week, a year, with all these uh, supposed honest fair and balanced news outlets, the alphabets, and everyone else that jumps, that goes in on that. And all that does is just keep restating and reemphasizing phony stories for the most part. But most of the masses believe that, and as a result, they never question the fact that they might be getting propagandized, and so they suck this in. So I'd say it's even easier now. But the point is, is that as the, as some of the investigators uh, at the time that this happened in 1865 were trying to get information from people in Virginia who were not going to talk. First of all, Virginia was, was southern, was obviously part of the Confederate States of America, and they weren't talking because some of them did 
abet uh, not only Booth but others in escaping uh, capture by Union forces, but they really don't want to talk to, to Union troops anyway. So they may have been tight-lipped at the time, but as decades went by, and not that many of them, but enough that would loosen their tongue because they knew that they were beyond re reproach. I mean, they just weren't going to be tried for anything any longer, and they did talk. So th we have their accounts. But all in all, this is a fascinating story, kind of calling it um, Who Called for the Hit on Abe? Because Lincoln was not killed because of any military reason. The CSA troops kind of went belly up. And um, it was understood it was over. So shooting Lincoln for some kind of military game was not going to happen. Just to shoot him because you spoil sports, you know, you, you sore losers or something like that? No. That was a hit. The question is, who ordered it? And that's what we're going to take a look into. Now, there are an awful lot of characters in this play, if you will. I mean, besides John Wilkes Booth, there's somebody else that's very important to the story because it's the individual who was shot and killed at uh, Garrett's Barn, which was about six miles south of Port Royal on the south bank of the Rappahannock. I'll have to take a look at that, but I believe it's the Rappahannock. But, uh, yeah, someone got shot and killed there, but it wasn't Booth. And Boyd was passed off as Booth. And the cover-up is amazing. But we're going to take a look at people such as not only James... Um, Boyd, and that's what's even more interesting is they both had W for middle initials as well. John Wilkes Booth, I think it was John William Boyd. Uh, we'll talk about that more later. But you have others, some that were involved, and this is the other thing. It wasn't an assassination plot. There were kidnapping plots against Lincoln for some time. And I would have to say, just generally speaking, that the four that were hanged uh, for the assassination attempt, or actually the assassination, it's probably only Lewis Powell, a.k.a. Lewis Payne, who deserved the hanging, not Mary Surratt, who was hung, hanged. Um, her son, John Surratt, who escaped uh, through French Quebec and then wound up in the Papal Guard, uh, Edward Henson, George Azarot, David Herald, uh, Samuel Mudd, the doctor. The doctor, that is, that uh, worked on Booth's uh, fractured leg. And this is another situation where many of the witnesses in four theaters said that Booth did not show any sign of having uh, a trauma to his left leg after he jumped to the stage from the presidential box uh, that that happened later 
uh, as Booth was making good his escape in Maryland, uh, riding uh, obviously pretty fast at night. Uh, weren't streetlights in those days in uh, the east shore of the Potomac in Maryland. So there's another whole thing about that. I mean, you just can't go more than a, a foot in this story and not have contradictions, questions. But going back to some of the other individuals, there was Edward Spangler, Samuel Arnold. And then you get to people like, well, then there's Michael O'Loughlin, who had his death faked so that he might be able to turn some, if you would, state's evidence. Um, then shook his... Um, his tale, if you will, from what was called at that time the National Detective Police. You might consider it eh, somewhat of a forerunner of the FBI. Uh, you know, maybe you can consider it Secret Service. But the point was is that it was a government association, organization rather, agency, if you will, uh, that was birthed because of the Civil War. And it was, it was a union in its nature. And um, so we have, we have him. A Lachlan uh, being an asset, if you will, and then shaking them, and the story gets better. He then becomes John Henry Stevenson, although the um, all the history books and uh, encyclopedias and such will state that O'Loughlin died of yellow fever in 1867 in the Dry Tortugas, a prison there that Mud was also kept at. Um, Mud was released. He was pardoned as well as some of the others. But it would seem that the four that were, were hanged, uh, Azarot, Harold, Mary Surratt, and Payne, arguably, like I said, Payne would be the only one. Now, on the other hand, although these people were involved in causes for the Confederacy, does that necessarily make them traitors? Does it make them treasonous? I mean, if you're fighting for another country, as this was, in a sense, uh, if you get caught, uh, so what does that make you except an enemy combatant. But in this case, you could say that they were all treasonous and all, all are due um, capital punishment. But then there's others, too, that are higher up. And, it, and it, I mean, it, it, just, it's just, it just stinks. There was Secretary of War Edward Stanton. There was Major Thomas Eckert. There was the head of the NDP, Lafayette Baker, Colonel Lafayette Baker. Uh, another interesting character, uh, Ward Lamont, who was Lincoln's bodyguard that was not there on that fateful Friday night um, at Ford's Theater, and his involvement is kind of sketchy. And then there were women like uh, supposedly Booth's wife, Isola uh, Mills, her maiden name, and there's a reason why it's questionable whether or not they were really married. They were supposedly married, but she was already married um, to another individual who kind of wasn't around too much a seaman. And then the question is, well, then that, that original marriage nullifies the second one. So they go back and forth about it. But the thing is, is that it was a paramour of Booth who had, I believe, two of his children and Isola's sister was involved as one of his paramours, as was Kate Scott. And Lola Alexander pretty much, well, let's just say it this way. She lived in New York, had a husband that was in the Union 
uh, Army as an officer that she made sure happened, got him in that way. Um, she was banging uh, Vice President Andrew Johnson. She was banging Booth and a couple of other people. So you get the picture. So uh, what Lola wants, Lola gets. And there's other women involved also. But, I mean, John Wilkes Booth <laughs> definitely didn't get cheated when it came to uh, amorous pursuits. Um, <clears throat> and then we have other things that were going on, too, that no one ever talks about in history books, and that there was a, a pork for cotton deal going on between the North and the South. This, this was known to Lincoln and to just about everybody uh, in the administration and in Congress. What this did was it gave the North the cotton that Britain wanted badly and was having a problem getting since the beginning of the Civil War. They were not happy with the product they got of India, and so they were getting a little bit upset about this. So what, what this pork for cotton deal did, it gave meat to the South, which it was in short supply of because the Union Army killed everything on four legs. So they got the pork uh, and some money. The North got the cotton, which they processed and sold to Britain. So there were people making money across the Atlantic. There were people making money in the North. And there were people making money in the South. And a lot of the business transactions and deals that went down um, occurred at a location in Montreal, Canada, where both Confederate and uh, Union principals met. So this is all going on at the same time. Now, there's some other countries that are involved in this, too, and this is probably more the way I see it, but I would leave it to you to decide whether or not I might be right in this case. And the countries that would be involved would be England, France, Russia, um, the Habsburg Empire, if you will, the Vatican, and the good old Jesuits. And this is all in the record and why they get involved in it. And I, I could almost say that I probably could put together a book under the, the thesis of the Civil War, the first international or world war. But more about that later. And then we come to the, the very interesting year, 1863, and all that took place in that year. People make much about the, the uh, coincidences, if you will, the commonalities between uh, Kennedy and Lincoln. Um, that is true, but I think there's even more than and more substantial ones than you would have, have realized. And we'll go through that. I just would say this, that both those presidents, the, I'll be honest with you, it, it seems as if there was a feeding frenzy to try to do something about both presidents. They had many, many enemies and probably precious few allies. I mean, it was, the fix was in for those two individuals. Now, here's another thing. I'm going to say this, that all presidents are sons of bitches. You have to be a son of a bitch to become president. You hear all that stuff about Washington being a Christian, you know, kiss my purple butt. Stop, all right? And this is another thing. Lincoln, uh-uh. And we have accounts from a number of people that dealt with Lincoln, and the story is not good about that man, in fact, one account that uh, we'll get to uh, from an agent in the NDP who previously to that, in the early years of the Civil War, 
uh, was a spy for the Union operating in northern Virginia. He said it very plainly. He said if it were not for the fact that Lincoln was assassinated, he'd never have his picture up there with George. And George was a son of a bitch, too. But the thing about Lincoln, I think, that gives him a heroic, I guess, remembrance, is that something happened, I believe, and again, we'll get through this, in 1863, where he realized he didn't want this war to be prosecuted over a longer period of time. He wanted it ended. He lost his stomach for it, perhaps you could say. But that wasn't supposed to happen. There were a whole lot of people that were interested in that war lasting longer because they were making money. Uh, there was also some other external forces that wanted to see last, it to last longer for the hope that the CSA, the Confederate States of America, could in fact succeed, secede and split uh, what we know as the, you know, the lower 48 for as many as there were states then at that time uh, into the, the United States of America and the Confederate States of America. Uh, <clears throat> so, what we'll do right now is uh, go back and take a look at an individual by the name of James William Boyd. He was the individual that was shot in Garrett's barn, at, uh, on Garrett's farm. And uh, this is going to come from the book Dark Union. Just to give an explanation of how Boyd came about uh, winding up being the one that was in the, the barn that day. Uh, I've said um, Confederate officers experienced an undercover activity. Agents posing as deserters or turncoats handpicked scouts from Colonel Mosby's command. These were the, quote, military men, unquote, drawn into the plot. In the closing months of 1864, there was a pattern of movement that, in the light of later developments, could be envisaged as a, a sort of pocket mobilization. One of the military men was Captain James William Boyd, 6th Tennessee Infantry. A Kentucky miller's son, orphaned in infancy, he was one of the three rebels captured by Union troops at Jackson, Tennessee, in the summer of 1863. This was the trio that included R.D. Watson's brother, James. And R.D. Watson was um, a businessman involved in this pork for cotton deal. And a fellow courier named Harry Darcy. They had been the object of a detective's manhunt that reached Chesa from Chesapeake Bay to the southern states. Their pursuit had been by train, steamboat, and horseback. A long-distance chase that the hunted trio turned into a cat-and-mouse game, availing themselves of crafty ruses, thunderstorms, and rail service interrupted by the Battle of Gettysburg. James Watson and Darcy were hanged. The third prisoner, Boyd, was too valuable to his captors. He was an ace Confederate spy and a scout, a battle-hardened veteran, a telegrapher, and a railroad detective. Boyd had studied law under a friendly Tennessean judge, yet he adhered to a retributive code of his own, inherited from grandparents who had reared him. As a sheriff's deputy, he had shot dead a horse thief who resisted arrest. He killed a man who tried to rape his daughter at a party. In the war, scouting behind Union lines, he was surprised by a Pennsylvania infantryman who fired at him, knocking him from his mount. Although grounded and bleeding, he quickly pulled around, reaching for his gun and shot dead his approaching enemy. He suffered a wound in his right leg, and that never healed.
And that also factors into this mystery. Following his capture, he was sent to the Union stockade at Johnson's Island, Ohio, where NDP men expert at getting captives to change sides worked on him. They failed to turn him around, but promised that if he supplied them with information gathered from other inmates, they would send cash to his consumptive wife and seven children. What Boyd gave the detectives was piecemeal and often meaningless. The arrangement ended. At age 41, Boyd blamed himself for the destitute state of his partly scattered family. Weary of scouting and espionage, he was genuinely disposed to change sides, but only in return for an unconditional parole that would allow him to return home and provide for the children he feared would be soon would soon be motherless. You and the kids come first, he wrote from prison to his wife Caroline, showing a pathetic concern for his family that would trap the tall Confederate captain, aging adventurer, an ill-starred uh, war spy into the plot against Abraham Lincoln. Stanton ordered prisoner of war Boyd transferred to Washington for questioning on what he knew about the alleged treachery of Union officers two years earlier at Holly Springs, Mississippi, which had resulted in a humiliating defeat for the North. Boyd's arrival in Washington under tight guard was duly noted in the Evening Star, which is a D.C. newspaper. Uh, in uh, the edition of October 31, 1864, which also reported that he was lodged in solitary confinement at the old Capitol prison. Such newspaper announcements were not a usual press feature. This was uh, for public consumption. Though supposedly locked up, Boy was occasionally at large on some assignment or another. Nothing would survive to precisely spell out whose interest he was serving or thought to be serving. So ambiguous was the nature of his allegiance that Lafayette Baker attached a, quote, control to him, a William B. Earl who specialized in liaison with turncoats. So, Boyd, you might suspect, I guess you could say, given the parlance of the late 20th century, that he could approximate a double agent. But what's key about this is that Stanton was aware of Boyd, and that's all you have to know right now. Uh, <clears throat> and you'll find out why later. Now, there's something I find extremely interesting. Uh, another author that I'm in contact with, whose work we'll get a look at, uh, didn't feel it was all that big a deal, but that's because I'm coming from a different perspective or angle than he is. And that's, I mean, that's fine. And I understand that. Uh, and while we're at this, let's, let's just talk about something I think is, is, is key. One of the things that has bothered me about books that are written, especially those by um, conspiracy authors and articles written on the internet, it's, it comes down to a battle of whose information is best. And, and this is something that I've gone through in my pursuit to try to find out the real deal about the United States. Do we all have biases? Yes, I guess we do. But on the other hand, if you find what you believe to be and can probably prove to be the best information, why should you not have a bias? It, I think we, we, we think of the word bias and it's, it's taken on this meaning that 
what you believe isn't necessarily the case, but you you know you just want to come from that angle because you want it to be right. You want you want to be right. You want the accurate uh, information to be thought of as being right, when in essence it isn't. That's not necessarily the case. I reach I reach certain places and I have to say this is it. I mean I can't find anything that would knock it off the, the pedestal or the you know the top of the dunghill, whatever you want to call it. And so. What I'm saying to you is, and you can go along with me on this journey, uh, I really would like you to do that. If you can find yourself to get, getting interested in this, I think it's worth as much time as you're willing to give it. I just have been gripped by this. and So where I'm going with this is, it's, it, research is the whole thing. Yes, it's true, but it's, it's the information being researched. And then holding it up to other Sources of information, what stands tallest, what can take the test of, of questions and criticisms. And, and that's really what it comes down to, but it, that's where things occur. I mean, that's where problems arise. Uh, people can be sloppy researchers. They can be also very, again, biased as to what they want. I mean, in other words, they'll come out. Uh, meaning to prove something from the very beginning, and they'll just grab what they can to, to substantiate that, if in fact it does substantiate that. But in this situation also, it's kind of interesting because it's at a time when, all right, we're well along with the printing press. We do have the telegraph now. I mean, it's mail service and all this, so you have some, shall we say, modern conveniences, and that helps, and that helps a lot in the research, but on the other hand, too, uh, you're in a situation where, you know, it's almost kind of like, well, what are the rules are we playing by here? Because around this Lincoln assassination, it was just thick with corruption, with deceit, with um, false faces. I mean, it was brutal. So we have some information, but again, you have to question whether or not some of these people that were writing very shortly after the assassination, say in the late 60s and, and into the 70s, 19, uh, 1880s, sometimes people were trying to make money also and sensationalize their work. There was no shortage of those kind of authors uh, that were willing to do that because what were the really outlets of entertainment during that time, there was no TV, there was no radio. How many people could afford, let's say, to go to uh, the theater, not the theater, the theater, uh, when there were live performances? Uh, what did you have? You could read. And for, you know, for a couple of cents or whatever, uh, that was a pretty good price uh, per whatever time you spent uh, engaged in reading. So it was economical, and it was entertainment, too, and so a lot of people were certainly manipulated or <laughs> um, led to come to some conclusions that perhaps didn't have a whole lot to do with the truth. So that's, that's another situation here. Uh, also at this time, uh, Dave McGowan is into his ninth part on the Lincoln assassination. Uh, he came on in what was one of my last phone interviews, and that is yet to be released. 
I've been emailing him, not that I expect him to answer. It would be nice if he did because I don't know where he wants to go, but there are things I find. I don't mean to bug him, but I sent him along. I don't know where he's going to go with his voyage <laughs> into this dark night. But um, no matter what he does, I mean, I, I'm, I'm doing my thing, but I would say take a look at what he did with regard especially to a very questionable uh, series of events that took place around the supposed, well, the... Oh, the intended death, uh, assassination, if you will, of William Seward, and the character known as Lewis Powell or Lewis Payne. Um, it just, it just, nothing is clear in this thing. It's, it's all, there's all curves involved in everything. But at any rate, I want to get to a letter that was written by a businessman uh, and a southerner to a, uh, individual associated with, I guess you could call it an export company uh, in New York City, a DeMillan company uh, on um, Water Street in lower Manhattan. So I'm just, I'm going to read it cold and you'll get the gist. The day that this letter is March 2nd, 1865. Starts off, friend Robert. I was much dismayed by what I found on return from Canada. You were gone but four days when I arrived, but a great amount had transpired in the interim. The provost marshal had seized much of our pork supply and has uh, placed the rest beyond our power to deliver it in compliance with our contracts. The day after our departure for New York, 1,300 barrels were seized. At, um, and, of course, he's writing this and not worried about being, uh, you know, the king's English. He calls it, was seized at, well, what is Cape Girardeau, all right? Cape Girardeau is in the boot heel of Missouri. Uh, and another 800 barrels uh, were seized at Chute's Landing. The next day saw the same repeated at Memphis, Owensboro, Louisville, and Brownsville. We are left with less than enough to fill our needs essential to our contracts due June 1st. Remember, this is March 2nd. Not only is this the financial loss of the pork acute, but it places us in arrears on our contracts with the government. I cannot but believe that this is planned by the government for the express purpose of causing us to default and thereby lose our advantage granted earlier. It is the same as occurred elsewhere. All right, I don't still think I have to say much about this, but it's obviously this Barnes, who's writing the letter, uh, is involved with the pork for cotton deal, obviously, and he's talking. To, he's writing to Watson, saying, "Hey, look, we have a lot of money out there, and all of a sudden, this uh, pork for cotton transactions are being stopped." All right, now here's where I think it gets good. Our friends in Liverpool are much upset by this sort of thing on the part of the Lincoln Seward administration, and there is much speculation as to the effect it will have on the Crown's policy. I mean, does anything take you about that? I mean, some of you who know what I've been doing for years and others who, who know what others have been doing for years, but again, with the association uh, to this very day that is not seen clearly by uh, certainly Americans, and that is uh, a strong attachment still to the motherland, and that would be England. So I'll read it again. He said, our friends in Liverpool are much upset by just this sort of thing on the part of the Lincoln Seward administration, and there is much speculation as to the effect it will have on the Crown's policy. 
it is certain that the loss of 250 million pounds will not be taken lightly. Of course, they're talking about British money. It is now clear that Lincoln allowed his friends to make arrangements, I'm sorry, make agreements, which would assure him of winning the election and that he is now repudiating those agreements so that he can, and this is in quotation marks, become his own man. End of quotation. This is the thought in Liverpool, and they say that it cannot be done. Now, just think about that. Now, I don't believe I'm reading too much into this. You may think I am at this very point. You may not think that way later. But just the fact that these elements are in there, I mean, what does it say to you when this Liverpool group of individuals says that Lincoln is trying to become his own man? If he's, if he's trying to become it, that means he hasn't been his own man. And this is what we're saying about presidents being handled. Even back in 1865. So isn't that interesting that those across the Atlantic are not happy with Lincoln because what everybody's suspecting now is that Lincoln is reneging, as he has been written, on this uh, uh, pork for cotton deal. Uh, and he is. Why they suspect it, I don't know. They think he's just double-crossing him. This is why I was saying to you about what took place in 1863 made a difference in Lincoln's prosecution of the war and going along probably with the will of his party and with the will of businessmen and most likely the will of certain important personages uh, in Europe. Uh, to me, it was clear that why he did this was to be one of the tools he'd use in accelerating the war's end, that he couldn't take it anymore. He wanted this thing over with. And that, too, ticked off a lot of people, the same ones that were ticked off by uh, a loss of um, revenue from this deal. So now, remember, Lincoln has been reelected. So in a sense, he's not really fearful of, of what he does and it not getting him reelected because reelection would be obviously another four years away. Whatever happened then, I'm sure he'd be happy to get out of the war and, and get, you know, not run again and be over with the whole thing. Okay, uh, and Seward is involved in this too. And a, another individual, I think that will come up in this letter, um, Salmon Chase, was the Secretary of the Treasury, and we'll find out whether or not they feel he's in on it, or he's like shaking his head going, what are you guys doing, meaning guys, meaning Lincoln and Seward. And now, now you realize why Seward might have been one of the targets in the assassination plot that was hatched by whom or what. Moving on. Barnes Wright writes, as to what they are to do, question mark, whatever must be done at once before the 1st of May, else it, would be, it will be to no avail. Now, why would it be to no avail if it isn't done by the 1st of May? Is that got to do with these contracts they're talking about? Is that the deadline for the contracts that he says have yet to be filled? Or is it something else? 
Now, remember that Lincoln was shot on April 15th. This was written on March 2nd, and they're talking about the 1st of May. Now, Barnes goes on to list five points. One, the CSA is dead and cannot help us. So here, even diehard Southerners, if Barnes was in fact that, and I think there's reason to believe he was, he understands it's over. He understood this in March before uh, uh, Lee ever surrendered at Appomattox. Long before, what, maybe six to eight weeks before. Um, interesting. Okay, so he knows, forget the CSA. I mean, he's talking about business now, I understand it, and he's not going to get any help from an army that's pretty much defeated, and, or even the government itself. The CSA didn't necessarily mean just the military, but he understood that the CSA was not going to survive. The Confederate States of America was not going to make it. Number two, and this is provocative, the Irish make big noises. <coughs> Excuse me, but they fight only in saloons. <laughs> now, what do we mean by that? Here's another interesting thing that was going on at the time, and you don't really hear much about this as well. It's a little bit larger. Eh, I'll say it's more than a footnote in Canadian history, but you don't really hear much about it in U.S. history. But those who uh, were in the United States, Irish immigrants, uh, who wanted to see Ireland free from England, you could almost say kind of like a early IRA, uh, were called Fenians. And the Fenian movement in the United States was to cause all kinds of hell <laughs> wherever they could uh, in the north or perhaps even in Canada, which was a target because obviously Canada was, was um, uh, in the English uh, dominion. Uh, they had, they had uh, tried to perform some raids in northern Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine, and did have, I believe, and I'm not going to get involved in this now, but uh, did try to strike into Canada, and it didn't work well, and it and just pretty much uh, faded away. But it's interesting because he, Barnes probably thought that there would be help from the Fenians to at least disrupt things in the north. That would be a help, or maybe even kidnap or kill Lincoln. All right, so that was number two. The Irish make big noises, but they fight only in saloons. Number three, we have been betrayed by Lincoln and Seward. So has Chase and friends. In, so has Chase and friends in England. Now, that's ambiguous, and you can read it a couple of ways. We have been betrayed by Lincoln and Seward. So has Chase and friends in England. I think we, though, we can uh, look at this as they're the direct objects of the betrayal by Lincoln and Seward so that Chase has been betrayed and friends in England have been betrayed. Are they Chase's friends or is he referring back to the Liverpool group? So Chase is not in on this. The Secretary of Treasury is, is executing what he must uh, in this poor, poor for cotton deal, as is, um, you know, the above board work he's got to do. But apparently he's shaking his head saying, I can't believe Lincoln put the brakes on this. All right. Number four, we can expect only limited help from England, but they will secure our credits. And number five, lastly, whatever is done must be done by us either directly or indirectly. I had a long talk with J.W. Now, J.W. here, here refers to John Wilkes Booth. 
as I returned through Belleville, which is in Canada, and he, meaning Booth, was greatly annoyed at his being placed under your friend, Captain B. Now, Captain B is James William Boyd. What does he mean by this? The kidnapping plot originated with Booth as the head. But you'll find out why they tired of Booth. Now, Boyd's available. All right. Now, in this pork for cotton deal, you really don't have to be. I mean, it's it's okay if you're a Confederate and it's okay if you're a Union uh, officer. It's just everybody understands that they got to be in on the deal. Um, so anyway, they got sick of uh, Booth, and I I guess well we'll we'll, we'll, we'll hear okay. Uh, he stated that the plan was his, and he should be allowed to carry it out, he meaning Booth. Booth stated that the plan was his, and that Booth should be allowed to carry it out. I explained that the situation had changed, and it was no longer a question of what he would do, but rather what he was able to do, because they're doubting that he can make good on his promise to execute the kidnapping. He, meaning Booth, is much too melodramatic, and to him the only thing is, quote, the scene, end of quotes, both on the stage and off. It is essential that the president and secretary not be harmed, those words underlined, not be harmed. But if they could be deposed for a fortnight, the Congress, we are assured, could and would act in the manner of the executive. We are further assured that our contracts would be recognized in toto. Now, understand, Barnes, who I'm sure has some fear that this letter might wind up in somebody's hands sooner or later, was emphatic that if we're going to pull off this kidnapping plot, the president and the secretary of state should not be harmed. Depose for a fortnight, okay, you sit on them somewhere in Virginia, you, you, know, you kidnap them, you bring them down to Richmond or maybe wherever, and what happens is they must have been told, or Barnes was uh, certainly had an indication that some other of these people that may have been making money off this deal that were in Congress would say, hey, look, if you can absent them, we'll be the ones that will take over. And I don't know what it says about checks and balances and who and in the what you would call what the chain of uh, of um, leadership. Uh, what happens when the president's not there and the vice president's not there and, you know, going on and on and on. And I don't know if it was the same then as it was when um, Alexander Haig misstated the the, uh, the order of secession, I guess you'd call it succession. So, it, and it may not matter because, again, you're, you're in war powers. That's what's going on here as well. You can pretty much do what you want to do because, in that sense, it is provided by the Constitution. So, people in Congress have said, look, if you can, uh, you know, absent them, we'll get in there. And we'll make sure those con uh, contracts are um, fulfilled because they because they they stand to make or lose money as well. So that's the aim. The aim is just to get them out of there. They don't care any more about the war. They know that's over with. It's not for military or political pur purposes or for zealots who you know just can't stand the fact that they lost. Which is why no matter what is said about Booth, and that's another character portrait that needs to be looked at. Because I don't see Booth as being a big Southern Confederate uh, zealot. I'll say why later.
Well, I'll read why later. But anyway, um, <clears throat> Barnes continues, I do not, I am sure, need to point out that all we have rests on a decisive action. The time for caution in the extreme is long past. The meat we hold is worth more than $2 million, and it is at present held by the U.S. government, and we certainly did not accumulate it to sell it to the U.S. at Army prices. I see little chance that we can fill our contracts in N.O. I'm assuming that means New Orleans. Uh, by June 1st. But Stringer, and that's the name of an individual, and who's Stringer? Stringer has been identified as Edward P. Stringer, British blockade running fleet owner with powerful British parliamentary connections. All right, so I'll read it again. I see little chance that we can fill our contracts in New Orleans by June 1st. But Stringer has assured that he could have 5 million pounds of pork at Wilmington or Charleston by July 1st. Uh, contact S, and S stands for John Surratt, and have him get in a connection with W.H. Lamont and see if the changes can be made. I'll get back to that in a, sen- in a second. And it, it finally, uh, the, the uh, farewell is be positive and prompt. All else is useless. Uh, resistance to tyrants is obedience to God. That's where that came from. Uh, and he signs it all uh, Virgil, which is James Virgil Barnes. Now, this last, next to the last paragraph, I find very disturbing. Now, remember, Barnes says that if they can't do something uh, by May 1st, all is lost. Here you find out that uh, they can work with filling out contracts no later than uh, July 1st. So I'll read it again. I see little chance that we can fill our contracts in New Orleans by June 1st. All right, we, he's saying we, we'll give up on that. But Stringer has assured us that he could have 5 million pounds of pork at Wilmington or Charleston by July 1st. So what's May 1st got to do with it? Is, is Barnes looking at that as the deadline for a meaningful kidnapping of Lincoln and Seward? But here's, the, here's what really is provocative. He writes, contact Surratt and have him get in connection with W.H. Lamont and see if the changes can be made. Well, what changes are those? Are we referring to that they're going to try to get this done by July 1st? Or are they talking about changes being kidnapping Lincoln? Now, Surratt is a Confederate. However, Surratt had a kind of interesting status. Uh, He would courier information down, because he was also in Montreal uh, at this uh, Port for Cotton uh, dealings. Uh, He was kidnapped. uh, He was kidnapped. He was arrested and allowed to to be uh, released. So Surratt is a Confederate sympathizer, you could say. That's what they called him. And um, a lot of these people were born in Maryland, but you have to understand something, and we've gone through this at other times, and we'll probably do something on this at some point. Uh, and I won't say anything more than that because it's, it's a mouthful right now, but the fact that it may have been determined where the District of Columbia was going to be and in what state it was going to be and who exactly made sure that that would be the case, uh, dating back perhaps to the late 17th century. Enough said on that. But at any rate, Surratt 
just went back and forth with ease. And the reason I'm saying this is that those Marylanders wanted to be in the South. They had nothing in common with the North. Maryland is the beginning of plantations. They had slaves. They were very much Romanist. And in a sense, kind of an isolated state amongst the other 12. That's a little bit strong. But there was no two ways about the fact that they were a greater Romanist state than at least the states to their north and to some in the south, because it's been underplayed by some authors that, like there were no Romanist or, shall we say, Celtic interests in the south. There certainly was. The Irish and German uh, Roman Catholics are not only in the north. So now he's going to get in contact with W.H. Lamont. Surratt is. Lamont is Lincoln's bodyguard. Their relationship goes back to when both were young men and first practicing law in Illinois. Lincoln understood that Lamont was Virginia-born. He was anti-abolitionist, which means he was pro-slavery. And he also was a broker and a lobbyist, if you will, for cotton from the South. So why in the world would Lincoln, after winning the election, take him with him to be his bodyguard with, shall we say, some of his uh, questionable associations and attachments. Lincoln knew it. said, don't worry about it. Come on. So besides Lamont being his bodyguard, he was named the, uh, the U.S. Marshal in the District of Columbia. So does Lincoln understand that Lamont and Surratt have a relationship? Now, remember, Lamont is the, is the bodyguard that was not there the night that Lincoln was shot. Some say Lincoln sent him off on some work in, to do in Richmond. Some say he um, said he, ha he had to take his leave because he had work to do in Richmond. But the thing is, if Lincoln didn't send him out on that task, then did Lamont absent himself so he could not be involved in what was to come that night, though he warned Lincoln before he left not to go out Friday night. So I just find it interesting that Surratt and Lamont, but as I said to you also, Surratt, acted as a go-between. Uh, it was widely understood. And I guess in the context of this money-making proposition, uh, Surratt might have been cut major slack. All right. So we'll leave it right there now. But I want you to at least to think about the, the um, mentioning of not only the money at stake, but that parties in England were not happy with Lincoln. All right. We'll leave it at that. And then we'll go on step by step through this whole situation, which I don't think you'll find boring to say the least. A lot of what we'll go through uh, is information firsthand by those who wrote the memoirs, and not by somebody else you know, doing something on somebody else. These are the principals who wrote their memoirs. They're, that's always where you're going to have to take a look and see if they're telling you the truth, some of it, most of it. No one ever really knows. But certainly the way that this whole situation with regard to outside interests, and I mean outside the United States, interested in what takes place here, perhaps even wanting to get involved in this civil war, which is why I said at the beginning as a teaser, could you say that it was our first world war? And I guess you would put world war in, in quotation marks. But remember, too, and this is in our history books, but we'll do something on that. I mean, I, 
you can go into the New York Tribune in October of 1863, and there it stated that the Russian Navy was there because Lincoln and the Tsar worked out a deal where the Russian Atlantic fleet went to New York and probably, I think, also went down to uh, Norfolk. I mean, they went up and down the coast a bit. And then the Pacific fleet went to San Francisco. Why? All right, so it gets better and better, I would hope you would think. And uh, this has been Act One. Uh, Mystery History Theater. Thank you.